0: This is the Journey 66 book writing podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Goetz and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book or maybe you've gone off road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. You don't have a platform, but you have a great concept for a book. In fact, you've even completed a chunk of writing and you think it's pretty good. Wait, no, maybe it's great. Now you wonder, should I try to find a literary agent to help me get published with a traditional publisher? But as soon as you spend a moment on that thought, your attention turns to a larger question. How do I even find a literary agent? Followed by another question, what will a literary agent actually do for me? Adria Getz is a senior literary manager, and she's with us here today to tackle some of these questions. She's currently accepting queries for picture books, middle grade, young adult graphic novels, adult fiction, specifically female-driven thrillers, suspense, and women's fiction, quirky gift books, lifestyle books, cookbooks, and devotions. Welcome, Adria, to our podcast. We are so excited to have you here today. It's going to be so helpful for our audience to hear from an actual literary agent. There's so much mystery around the topic of literary agents, so thank you. Thanks for having me. So before we dig into our interview with you, Dave and I want to share where we've made progress this week. So Dave, you go first.
1: So you're catching me at a good point because I am going to Montana next week for my annual fly fishing trip. So I fly fish throughout the year, but I usually fly fish either in the Wisconsin drift list or the Minnesota driftless, list, or maybe if I'm in Colorado. Once a year, I take a trip to Montana. And so that's coming up. I'm leaving Monday, which I can't wait. We fish all the great Western rivers, Yellowstone, the Madison, sometimes the Gallatin. So the big thing always is I pack last minute. That's how I roll. And this time I'm, I'm thinking a little more strategically about it, in part because I find that I have my backpack, which has my computer in it, because as a running a small business, you're really never off. But then I have two other bigger, chunkier suitcases that have, one has my clothes, one has all my fly fishing gear. And so I'm trying to figure out a way to put some of that in a, in a small carry-on so I don't have to pay two fees, right? Because yeah. it's like 35 bucks a pop. Yeah. So anyway, so I so the progress is on this trip, I'm actually thinking a little bit beforehand about what I should do. So
0: I think packing is the worst part of vacationing. I wish I could have somebody come into it for me because I never, I'm in the right space to think about what I want to wear five days from now. I'm always like, what do I feel like in the moment? So it's always so challenging <laughs> for me. I guess if you're fly fishing though, the outfits are pretty much the same, but you have to yeah. think how cold am I going to be? How hot am I going to be?
1: Yeah. And you, you kind of wear the same thing. You start out on Monday and you kind of, by Friday, you're kind of wearing the same thing.
0: And you're probably stinky absolutely (laughs) that's part of the fun of fly fishing all right well mine has to do with the great outdoors also and i'm not really a great outdoors girl but every year we go camping up in door county during columbus day weekend and we've been doing it for 16 years with friends and the weather is always kind of on the edge of being really terrible like we've got snow we've gotten rain and You know, sometimes one year it was super hot. The year that the Chicago Marathon where they had to shut it down early because they were out of water, that year it was so hot and it was just not fun camping. Anyway, I just, I hate, I, I like the idea of camping, but I really hate camping because I just don't like being uncomfortable. So over the years, I've tried to make it more comfortable by bringing all my vintage and antiques with me to decorate my tent. And this year we went all out. We um, borrowed a, one of those huge canvas tents from a friend that actually fit a king-size bed, or we made a king-size bed out of two twin mattresses. We elevated it on a platform and I brought all these little, I, b- I brought paintings and mirrors and it was, you know, we brought a heater to plug in and a sh- I hung a chandelier in the tent. And so all weekend I was just like decorating and I'm like, camping could be fun if all i have to do is decorate all weekend long it was a lot of fun so anyway i'm making the best of something that i don't like i guess that's the progress
1: <laughs> what's the word for that what's the word oh yeah
0: lamping G L A N P I N. it's a portmanteau i guess is what it is to use a word from a previous episode <laughs> where you link two words together what about you adria <laughs>
2: I I love the idea of decorating your tent when you're camping. That's so cute. I went camping a couple weeks ago with my brother and sister-in-law and my husband. And my sister-in-law does not like using public bathrooms. So she has invested in a bathroom tent where she can have her little like bucket toilet. And I just love when people take control of their happiness and, you know, invest in something that's going to make them enjoy experience and experience more so that's
0: that's great yeah I have a friend who did that too she is even less of a camper than I am and she did the same thing she called it the portable potty or something and she had this really beautiful sorry curtain that she wrapped around it so it was very elegant in the, in the woods so anyway yeah we probably have a lot more in common than we think what about you have you made any progress this week on anything in your life maybe related to your house or your work or a relationship
2: anything that's a great question. I think so. Like I was saying earlier, my husband and I are renovating our Victorian farmhouse, which has needed some love. And we, I have a hard time, like when when I find something that I love that I think is perfect for the house, but it's like outside of our budget, I have a hard time letting go of that. So I found a chandelier for our living, our dining room that I loved, but it was like $500. <laughs> And I work in publishing, so <laughs> I don't have a spare $500 dollars lying around. And so I just I really had to let go of that and just be like, it's beautiful, but it's not in my budget. and I know that I can find something in my budget if I just try a teensy bit. And so I just went on to offer up and found this beautiful old brass chandelier for like 50 bucks. And it's like, yeah, that's that's in my, <laughs> that's in my budget. So uh, I think that's progress, kind of letting go of the, the dream and then, you know, finding something more realistic that still, I think, is beautiful hanging yeah. above me right now. Yeah, I would love to
0: see it. <laughs> I love that. I, I often am in the same boat, you know, especially, yeah, I always want more than what my budget allows for, so I can totally identify. But Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, up they all have such great bargains waiting to be found if you can be patient and jump on it at, right, the right, at just the right time. Well, thank you for sharing. So, Adrienne, we want to just start out by having you describe in the simplest terms what a literary agent is and maybe even what you're not. What do people think you are that you're really not? I, I know there's a lot of confusion around the topic of literary agents. Maybe you can clear it up for our audience.
2: Yeah. So in the simplest terms, we are like real estate agents, except instead of selling houses, we sell books. And it's a much more long-term and close-knit relationship than you'd have with your real estate agent. Although we loved our real estate agents. So <laughs> But I think that the misconceptions... Um, I think first, just the mental image people have about literary agents is often pretty incorrect because when you see a literary agent in a movie or on a TV show, it's always someone that's like wearing a sharp blazer in a sleek office in a New York skyscraper and they're like snapping at their assistant for coffee and, you know, just pouring over their slush pile and they hate everything. And it's like, well, really, most of us are at home, either in our home office, which is probably a mess, or we're literally sitting on our couch in sweatpants with a cat curled up on our lap, which would be (laughs) me. And so when people tell me like it's intimidating or scary to query agents, I always just encourage them to take a moment before they click send on a query and just imagine that the person on the other end of the email is sitting on a couch, you know, snuggled up with a cat. And we're also not judging and hating every single query we receive, truly. I I see amazing projects that are well-written and beautiful and have incredible fiscal potential every single day. So most of the time when I pass on a project, it's not because I don't see potential. It's just because it's the a practical, like I receive such a high volume of submissions that I have to say no to a lot of good stuff.
0: That leads to such an important question, which is you're saying no to a lot. So what is the filter through which you are you're filtering these manuscripts through? What are you saying yes to? What's your criteria? What are you looking for? What's a slam dunk for you? What are some things that you look for, but you may forgive if it's not absolutely there because something else is right up your alley. So I'm always looking for something that is going to
2: delight me (laughs) because I have to put so much unpaid time at the front end of a project in order to sell it. So because I'm not being paid for that work yet, like I really need to be driven by my enthusiasm for it. So I really need to love it and love the concept. But more importantly, I I need to believe that readers are going to love it. And because I I work in the kid lit space so much, like I'm thinking about what is going to delight kids um, or what do I think is going to delight kids? Every kid has their own individual, you know, set of likes and dislikes, of course. But I just think like, does this seem like something the kids in my life would like? And then I'm also looking for something that will win over the quote unquote adults, meaning the editors, the parents, the grandparents, the teachers, the librarians, the people who get the books in the hands of kids. And that's a more nebulous thing. Um, But in general, I think the adults tend to like books that in some way tap into the current cultural zeitgeist. So I'll give two examples of that. The first is a book I sold um, that I think very overtly taps into the cultural zeitgeist. It's called School is Wherever I Am. It's written and illustrated by Ellie Peterson, who was a middle grade or middle school science teacher. And when the pandemic hit and school went virtual, she saw and noticed her kids were still learning things, but it was, just wasn't in the context and the confines of a classroom setting. So she wrote this book inspired by that, about how you can learn wherever you go. And I don't think it specifically ever says, you know, COVID or coronavirus anywhere in the book, but it very much taps into what we're all currently experiencing, um, aka the cultural zeitgeist. And then another book that taps into it uh, in a more subtle way is a book called Taste Your Words by Bonnie Clark and Todd Bright. And it's a book about a girl whose words have taste. So her unkind words taste bitter and icky and her kind words taste delicious and sweet. And it has this age old lesson at the heart of it, but it feels like something that's particularly timely as we're living in this very polarized, heated world where people are being nasty to each other at the grocery store and and picking fights and saying awful things online, you know, being internet trolls. And so it felt like it tapped into the current cultural zeitgeist in a, in a really nice kind of more abstract way while still having this very fun, hooky concept that, that kids really like. And this one is one that my nieces apparently requested to have as their bedtime story like 30 days in a row. So now one of my nieces, Mira, has it completely memorized word for word.
0: <laughs> what about platforms? When you're, when you're looking at manuscripts, are you looking at an author's platform or... Their reach, or just what, um, because that's what publishers look for. Do you is that something that you take into consideration when you begin working with the writer and author? So the space that I work in, which is mostly kid lit fiction,
2: really does not require a platform. Um, so I don't need to see one. That, I think that's much more important for if you're writing adult nonfiction. Kid lit publishing doesn't care as much. I do like to see that people have social media accounts that they're posting, you know, whether that be Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, just because it's a very simple, uh, built in way to promote your books and connect with other writers. That I think that in and of itself can be a helpful thing, even if it, there isn't a platform attached to it. Because publishers, they do expect their author to contribute as much as possible to marketing and publicity efforts. So being on social is just a very tangible way that you can contribute to that.
1: So Adria, as you, you know, you're sitting on the couch, you have a cat curled up in your lap, you you have, let's say, 20 manuscripts in front of you. Have you printed those out or are you reading them online? In other words, they've sent them to you by email. And then how far into most proposals are you able to judge whether this is a no, yes, or a maybe?
2: So I read all of my submissions via email. I don't accept um, physical submissions. I don't print them out. I mean, I, I think most of my decisions, most of my passes are made at the query letter stage because I really need to fall in love with a a concept of a book. And so I'll read your query. If it sounds like something that that interests me, then I'll dive into the pages. But more often than not, it's like, well, this concept feels quiet. It doesn't feel like something that's going to be at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, uh, which is my ultimate goal is to get a client on the bestseller list, or it's just not a genre that, you know, interests me. Um, so most of my decisions are made just based off of the project's concept.
1: So you're reading those with, that's within 20 seconds almost because those queries are quick, right?
0: Yeah. And what does the query letter look like or what should always be in a query letter? And how do you make it as appealing for a literary agent as possible? What shouldn't they do in a query letter? (laughs) Oh man, I, I teach like a
2: 90 minute long workshop on this topic, but let me see if I can boil it down. What I, I think the most important part of the query letter is the first paragraph, obviously, you know, that's very important real estate. And so what I like to see in that first paragraph is, you know, a nice greeting, the title of the book, the word count, the age category, meaning like, is this picture book, middle grade, young adult? You don't need to say like the age of the reader. And then a, a sentence long kind of general elevator pitch for the project just so I have a bird's eye view of what's going on and it helps me kind of get grounded in in what the project is. And then from there, you can have a paragraph or two, you know, describing the the project as a whole. I need to see comp titles. So two to three titles of books that are similar to your book in some way that have, you know, sold well, but not not too pie in the sky. Like you don't want to say my book's going to be the next Harry Potter or the next Hunger Games. But you need to give a sense for who your audience is with these comp titles. And they should be books that have been published within the last three years. So the publisher knows that uh, or the agent knows that it's something that will appeal to the current market. And then, you know, a little author bio to tell me a little bit about yourself. And then, yeah, and then that's it. And then you just have to make sure that you follow the agent's submission guidelines and say like, per your submission guidelines, like attached as the first chapter or whatever the guidelines may be.
0: In the bio, are you looking for specific writing experience or are you just looking for something that is interesting about the the author? What do you, what catches your eye when you get to the bio part?
2: I just want to get a sense for their background. Um, obviously, if they have a writing or publishing background, if they have other books, I want to know about that. But I just want to know what their life looks like, if they have a day job, where they live, just general stuff. It doesn't need to like, wow me or overly impress me. Just, just give me a sense of, of who you are.
0: So once you take on a book project, they've gotten through the query phase, and I'm sure we'll jump back. And then you decide to pitch it to a publisher. What looks different between like the query phase and then when you actually do a book proposal for a, pu- a publisher? How much of that is duplicated? How much do you work on that with an author? And what are the differences? Or do they look very similar? No, you know what I would say the differences are, but I can just walk through kind of what my
2: process is. Sure, that'd be awesome. So when... When we first when I first sign a client um, or actually before I sign a client, we'll have an intro phone call where I'll go over my big picture editorial notes for their project that they pitched me just to make sure that we're on the same page editorially. And then once they give me the green light that they want to work with me, um, I'll send over kind of more extensive typed up editorial notes and they'll get to work on revising. And then while they're revising, I'm putting together my sublist, my pitch letter, sometimes a proposal, depending on the project, my overall strategy for submissions. And then my client will send me their new imp- and improved manuscript. We'll go back and forth a couple times, depending on the project, until we feel like it's ready for submission. And then I'll send it out to publishers that I think are kind of the, the best choice. And then I'll send my client a link to their submission spreadsheet, which they like to agonize over. And they can um, check in with that whenever they want. It's a, a live document so they can see it being updated in real time. It's also color coded and alphabetized, which makes me happy. And then we give submissions some time to breathe and wait to see, you know, what editors think. Sometimes a project is a slam dunk. It sells on the first round of submissions and sometimes we need to take some time to revise, you know, based off of what editors are telling us why why people are passing. And then sometimes we don't really hear a lot of a lot of editorial feedback or reasons, but it's just clear that we haven't knocked on the right door yet, and so we'll just forge ahead with more submissions and just keep Knocking on doors until we find a home or, or, you know, reach a point where it's like, okay, it's not going to happen for this one Um, and we'll shelve it. And then we'll regroup and decide,
0: okay, what's next? So at the beginning, you said literary agents are kind of like real estate agents. But what I also hear you saying is you provide a lot of editorial coaching through this process. Is is that true? Does a good literary agent provide that coaching to get your manuscript to a point where it's ready to see a content review board at a publishing company?
2: I don't think like you're a bad agent if you don't really get in the weeds editorially. Because some projects just, you know, when they're pitched to you are already pretty good. I just have found this is such a competitive industry that the more editorial feedback and work we can do up front, the better chances we have at, you know, landing a deal. But yeah, there, you know, there is a lot of editorial work, especially for fiction agents that goes into the front end. And then, yeah, I mean, I'm there for the whole process, not just the the sale, because um, I'll we'll sell it, I'll negotiate the deal, the contract, we'll get the terms all sorted out. And then things are mostly handed over to the editor from there. But I'm tapped back in if clients need help navigating a tricky conversation with their publisher. There's a conflict. I'm also, you know, nagging publishers to send payments when they're due. I'm sitting in on marketing and publicity meetings sometimes. I'm giving pep talks to clients. I'm, I'm talking people off ledges. I'm putting out fires. So most of, the de- most of the work is done kind of at the beginning of, of the selling process, but there's also a lot of support that goes into the, the rest of the journey.
1: What would be an example of like a tricky conversation that you help negotiate?
2: I have so many examples in my mind, but I'm trying to think of like, how do I make this as vague as possible so I don't get in? <laughs> I think sometimes an editor will push and push and push on a certain note. And the author will push and push and push back. And then there, there's kind of like a, a, stand, a standoff or like a standstill. And it's like, okay, how who's going <laughs> to, what's going to happen next? And so that's when I'm tapped in and we have a phone call. And usually both parties give, but usually the editor kind of can hear on the call how important a certain aspect of the story is to the, the author. And then they'll kind of back off. Those types of calls, I think, are, are very few and far between. But there's been a spike in those types of calls during the pandemic, I think, because everyone is so on edge. And so, yeah, a lot of issues come simmering to the surface.
1: Back when you mentioned you like these books that tap into the cultural zeitgeist, mm-hmm. that just struck me that in your query, if you're querying an agent, you should really make that an important or a highlighted piece of your query right why this book and why this book now and how it taps into say the supply chain problem we're having right now or something like that i mean that's not your area your area's not business but i'm just saying it sounds like that you would pay attention to that
2: yeah 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 definitely i mean i really need to fall in love with the concept itself but if something is is just automatically going to resonate with the market, that's almost like a built-in platform in and of itself. So yeah, anything that just feels timely and feels like it's going to relate is, is a great thing to highlight.
0: Adri, can you tell me how especially new authors can go about finding an agent? I mean, some people go to these conferences that promise you'll get connected to agents, but if they don't go to a conference, then I mean, how would you recommend somebody does that if they are really green and new to this publishing scene?
2: Yeah. So as far as just finding literary agents to query, like finding names and information, there are a couple different ways. There are guidebooks with a bunch of agents listed. If you go to just Barnes & Noble or Amazon, you'll be able to find them. For kid-lit writers, the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators, SCBWI, is a great organization to join. They, they will take you under their wing and help you figure out <laughs> the industry. And they also have a document, I believe it's called The Book, and it's a, a PDF It has a bunch of kid lit agent information. You know, you can, you can connect with agents at conferences. I've done a million bazillion conferences and I think I've only signed one or two clients from them. So it's not like the leading place I would recommend. You can find out about a lot of agents through Twitter. Once you like follow a couple agents, you'll be able to learn about more agents don't recommend like DMing agents and being like, can I query you? Can I pitch you my project? I don't recommend that. But as far as, as, as connecting with agents, you know, I connect with most of my clients just through them querying me. Just a traditional slash pile. Or I guess the traditional slash pile is an actual pile of manuscripts, but you know what I mean? The email. And then I've also had a lot of success with the Twitter pitch events that, that happen where it's like a a designated day or couple of days of the year where you can tweet a little pitch of your project with a certain hashtag, and then agents and editors can go through and request to see your projects. So there's one, so there's PB Pitch, that's for picture book writers. There's PitMad, which is a catch all uh, pitching event. There's DV pit for projects by creators with marginalized identities. And then there's Faith Pitch for um, Christian books. So I've connected with about probably a quarter of my client list through these Twitter pitch events. So I think it's, it's worth it to kind of look into that, that option too.
1: So how does that work? So, how, so they'll still designate October 15th, for example, and you basically post on your feed, your, your book, and then you put the hashtag. Is that how it works?
2: Yeah. And then we just scroll through the hashtag and if something catches our eye, we favorite the tweet. and then it's like a, a little wink to <laughs> to the author
0: to send their work our way. That is fascinating. I don't think that I've heard that from anybody in the months and years that we've been doing these types of interviews. So that's really Yeah. I, I
2: really like it because like I love, I love reviewing
0: submissions. I I
2: always want people to like, if they're unsure if I'm the right fit for them, like send me a query anyway. I think it's so, so delightful to wake up every morning and like see what landed in my inbox overnight. But I think a lot of people are, are scared of querying. And so because they're just not sure. And so the, the Twitter pitch events kind of, I think, give people a little courage and a little like prompting, like, look, this agent want is like requesting that you send it their way, like there is already interest. And so I think that's cool.
0: What if an author is rejected multiple times by multiple literary agents? Is that a sign that maybe you should just give up? Or is there ever a time where you ask for feedback from a literary agent, like what they could improve on? or deliterations just not have time for that. And they just have got to figure out why they're getting rejected on their own or just move on and maybe take that as a sign that they're not supposed to be writing a book. I I, I would love some honest input on that answer.
2: People ask me all the time to give feedback on their submissions. And I, I never respond to those emails. You know, sometimes I, I will like have something to say. And so I'll, I'll send, I try to send one personalized rejection every day just because I think that like, one you know that adds up over time but but yeah most of the time I just don't have the the time to do that but as far as kind of like taking cues I think like there's no test to take to tell you what to do it's not like a pregnancy test where you can pee on a stick and it tells you like you should stop querying this like it's or like you should keep going because sometimes you do need to take a beat and revise further maybe get some second reads from a critique partner or a writing group. But at the same time, I do often think that writers give up too soon. And I get it. Like there's only so much rejection a person uh, can handle in a given season. And I know a lot of writers will will just take a a pause from querying just for the the sake of their own mental health, which I completely understand and respect. You got to do what you got to do. However, I meet a lot of writers at conferences who will say things like, ugh, I think I just need to shelve this project. Like I queried 15 agents and they all passed on it and I just don't think it's going to happen for me. And when I hear things like that, I'm like, you only queried 15 agents? <laughs> like that's not even scratching the surface. There are so many wonderful agents out there. And obviously you, you only want to query agents who have you know, good reputations and who you think would be a good fit for your work. but publishing is such a numbers game. And it's, it's like the lottery. It's like the more likely you are to win the, li- the lottery or you're more likely to win the lottery if you buy 60 lottery tickets um, than you are if you buy 15. So I just always encourage those people to, to keep buying <laughs> lottery tickets and, and keep sending their
0: work out if they feel confident in, in their manuscript. A couple of things I want to respond to. The first is don't expect a rejection letter. <laughs> is that... Generally the industry standard, like literary agents are so full at capacity that they probably won't have time to respond to you. Well, I respond I respond to every single,
2: every single submission I receive. Okay. Um, but it's mostly a form letter that I
0: send. Okay. So don't expect the personalized feedback. Correct. No. Okay. And the second thing is it, it is a numbers game. So can you give our listeners an idea of like how many would be a good number that might sound absurd to the listener, is it like 50, 100? Like, what what is that number? I, I know you say the more the better, but how many have you heard of somebody um, submitting? I mean, I've heard of people submitting
2: to like 150 or something before they, they connected with the right agent. I don't know. I mean, I, I, and I haven't been a writer that's queried agents before, so I don't have firsthand experience. I think like writers or authors would have a better answer for that. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be really curious to, to have someone compile all that data into a chart,
0: right? <laughs> on average. So you were talking about this kind of long-term nature of a relationship with an author. Can you describe that? And is it typical for you to do multiple projects with an author? Like once you get them published once, will you go back to them and say, hey, let's work on another project? Or do they come to you? Or can you explain the nature of an ongoing relationship with an author?
2: I always have um, what's called a blanket uh, working relationship with clients, which just means that I ideally want to uh, work with them for the rest of their careers, and I want to represent and sell as many of their projects as possible. Now, sometimes it's not the right fit. Sometimes that doesn't happen. But, and I, and I won't just send anything out on submission. Like, I really have to believe in it. And so, even when you have an agent, you, you get told no, you get rejected. Not everything you write is going to be saleable. But yeah, my goal is, is to work with people for the long term and to represent, like, yeah, the, the blank, like all of their um, work. And I have one client, Tina Cho. I think we've done like seven books together since we started working together and um, we'll do
0: many, many more, I'm sure. What is the best part of your job? Like, where do you get the most energy? What keeps you waking up every day to look in your inbox and to continue working with the writers? What, What is it that gives you energy?
2: Yeah, I've said this many times and I always feel cheesy saying it, but I just love that feeling of feeling like I'm this bookish fairy godmother that that swooped into someone's life and like helped make their their bookish dreams come true. I think that's just, it's just really exciting to, to be like, I made this happen for someone. Like this was the, a dream they've had since they were a little girl or a little kid. And that that's just a really special feeling. And as far as like what energizes me, um, I love working with author illustrators. I love when they send me new art that always puts a pep in my step. I love the feeling of holding a book in in you know person for the first time, the client's book. That's that's a really special feeling too.
1: So, how long does it take to become a literary agent? So, I've started three businesses, and Melissa and I have started one together. And generally, we have this rule of thumb that it takes a thousand days. It takes about three years until you know fully whether the business is going to make it. We start to have cash flow. It's not like you don't have any money before then, but you know, things finally start to you start to see the clouds part. You start to see making payroll without having to dip into your retirement account, et cetera, et cetera. I'm being a little bit facetious here. So, but as an agent, how how long does it take? Does it take three years, four years?
2: I think every agent is different. I think I wasn't making what I felt was a proper salary until last year. That would be about three years because I started in well, I started kind of the end of 2016. Maybe that's four years. I don't know. The end of 2016, and then the year of 2020 was my first. Like, okay, that's like a that looks like a salary.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> first few years, it's like that does not look like a salary. But I supplemented it. I mean, I during those those years, I I worked for my local library system in their communications department. I um, did a stint as a nanny. I, I was a f- delivered flowers for a florist shop for a little bit. Yeah, but I think every, some people are faster than that. Some people take longer than that.
1: There's this idea that with nonfiction, you don't have to have the whole book written. You really need, you know, the query and at least one chapter, maybe the thesis chapter for the book. Is that the same with, with Kidlet? Now with Kidlet, you have, you know, obviously the book probably has to be all done if it's a picture book, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not that long, but uh, some of your fiction, do you demand that the entire book be completed so you kind of see if they can dev- actually develop the plot and there's an, a good ending to the story?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would never take on a, a half-written <laughs> partial manuscript for fiction. Has to be
0: has to be fully written. You mentioned early on that you do a workshop for query letters. Is that something that people can pay for or find online? Is it something that we can promote here for people who are interested in learning more?
2: No, I, I usually do them through SCBWI conferences. So there's no, like, there's no like, place to, to go
0: like, watch it. You, can, you should consider doing one and having people yeah, pay for it. Really, yeah, Another income source. <laughs> yeah. This has been incredibly helpful. Dave, do you have any other questions or are, are we good?
1: I don't. You know, I just, Adrian, I just can't tell you how practical and also some nuggets, you know, the whole Twitter pitch thing was something I'd never heard of before. And maybe that's because most of the things I've written have been nonfiction, but I, I'm assuming that nonfiction has those pitches as well.
2: Yeah, I think you could pitch nonfiction for on Pit Mad, which is a pretty anything goes type of type of one. I don't know if there's a nonfiction specific, but
0: PitMat is the catch all. Yeah, you're so articulate, too. I am so grateful for the time that you've given us today and how richly and generously you've shared. We really, really appreciate it. I know that our audience is going to just take away so much from this interview.
2: Thanks for having me. I hope that everyone in the audience queries me. <laughs> yeah, I
0: hope so, too. I hope you get something really good from this. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Before we close out the episode though, we want to do our words of the episode and I will go first as is the typical way we do things. And my word is plenipotent, plenipotent, which is just a fun word to say. It's kind of like omnipotent, but it's plenipotent, which is a cross between like plentiful and powerful. The two words are kind of put together there. And so it means invested with or possessing full power. So here is a sentence, nature impassive and plenipotent. Plenipotent waits to reward or punish us. So that is my word of the day. And that was from Julia Witte, the 13th tipping point.
1: So leave it to Melissa to come up with a word that we've never heard of before. Plenipotent. So plenipi- <laughs> How do you say it?
0: Plenipotent. Plenipotent. Plenip- like plenty and potent. Yeah, plenipotent. Plenipotent. Plenipotent.
1: plenipotent. Well, I'm, I'm going to go there today as well. I'm going to go with a word that I'd never heard of before.
0: Oh, uh, good.
1: And it was imbrication.
0: Ooh, good word.
1: It's the overlapping of edges, such as tiles or scales. So you could say that the the fish scales are That's imbricate imbrication. So it's the overlapping pattern. You know, the metaphoric piece of it is the overlapping pattern or decoration. So the tiles on your roof would be a form of imbrication because they overlap. So a, a a sentence would be: Arts imbrication in networks of money and power is hardly a contemporary phenomenon.
0: That's so, interesting. So that was used in a more metaphorical
1: sense. Yes. Yeah. So it's overlapping networks of power and money. So yeah. imbrication. So art's imbrication and networks of money and power is hardly a contempor- contemporary phenomenon.
0: Yeah. so art is overlaid, overlapping with network and money, of money yeah. and power. Interesting. Oh, good word. I totally want to use that word.
1: Yeah, please. <laughs> I'm going to
0: try. <laughs> I'll try and I'll probably use it incorrectly. So Dave, before we say goodbye to Adria and say goodbye to our audience over the day, can you tell us a little bit about what people can find on the Journey 66 website and what we're offering?
1: So what we'd like you to do is jump on the site and there's two things you can do. We have a tipster sign up. We do a weekly email and we just provide a tip. I think last week it was on about how to build a thousand followers and how a thousand followers alone can sustain you as a writer that came from Kevin Kelly who was the co-founder of Rider, of of uh, well he was a co-founder of Wired magazine but he wrote a piece in 2008 that just has been forwarded and reforwarded and and it's just it's an amazing piece about he said hey if you're a creative and you can build a 1000 loyal fans you can build a pretty good lifestyle even quantified it back in 2008 he said it could be a, you can make about $100,000 a year so it was a really interesting piece. So I, I use that as, a, as an example to talk about the importance of billing followers and that you don't need a billion followers to, to, uh, to have a real platform. So we do something, it'll be on this week, it might be on punctuation, it might be on how to create cadence in your writing, how to develop your voice as a writer, but it's just one simple tip. It, it's weekly So if you want to jump on, sign up for that. The other thing is you could take our quiz. If you go to the homepage, journey66.com, you'll see a place where you can click on our quiz. And it's a great, it's really great if you're at the very, very, very beginning phases of thinking about a book and you're not really sure. It's, It's unformed. It's chaotic. And this little quiz will help you focus it. And as a result, you get this little activity about how to... Uh, move your idea from being in a general idea to more of a classic book thesis and make it bookworthy. So take the quiz or sign up for Tipster.
0: All right, Adrienne, I just want to thank you again for being with us today and just all oh, your phenomenal insights. And I hope we can have you back at another point because I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Dave, I think that is a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks.
1: And I'm Dave Getz.
0: Now buckle up and write.